Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Okay, um, so like I said, of course, the recording will finish the stuff up and then we'll talk a bit about the upcoming test. Um, I, uh, we, we had this up before I had it up. Um, how do I kill those pot lights? Are they always on? Is, can you see that okay? Because I honestly have no idea how you see. It's not too much glare on there or anything. You're okay? Sorry. Okay. Um, so basically, these things are, are GABA modulators. Um, they make GABA more effective, basically. So, and you can see that's what the dashed lines mean in this diagram. So you got a benzodiazepine receptor, you got a barbiturate receptor. Um, they both, here's the GABA receptor, it opens a chlorine ion channel, right? So the benzodiazepine receptor, this, this diagram just shows sort of the standard way these diagrams work, is that the dashed line means it's a modulator. The interesting thing is here at a higher dose, the, benz, the barbiturate receptor can actually open the, the uh, ion channel on its own. It's a chlorine ion channel, which means it makes the charge uh, across the membrane more negative, making it harder to fire. Okay? You can see then that that's going to be pretty dangerous, especially the barbiturates, because the barbiturates, then if they can actually act like GABA, basically act as, as a GABA agonist, well, they're both acting as GABA agonists. They're actually acting as a like, just like GABA. Um, if they can do that, and we got something that's going to make it less likely for neurons to fire, this is one of those things, usually with depressants in general, the, the, the scary part of this is the when you take a bit too much, you can end up going to sleep and not waking up. Unlike stimulants, which while I'm not suggesting you start taking cocaine, what can happen there is you need a very large dose to maybe have a heart attack. Right? It's the effects of it, like the chances of an accident. Uh, yeah, yeah, they really are. I mean, stimulants are on average safer drugs than just on average, I mean, again, I wouldn't call cocaine fun or safe. Well, it's fun. I wouldn't call it safe. So the effects, uh, barbiturates affect blood pressure. They, they lower your blood pressure. Benzodiazepines don't. You'll see through these effects that you, now why we use benzodiazepines for most things, not barbiturates anymore. Um, they both have anticonvulsive properties. This shouldn't be surprising. Uh, basically, uh, convulsions, seizures, these kind of things are random neural firing. And to stop random neural firing, let's make every cell a little less likely, well, not every cell, anything that has a GABA synapse, less likely to fire. Benzodiazepines make great muscle relaxants. Uh, barbiturates do too, except they have the, the downside of lowering your blood pressure. They both affect REM, and the REM effect is that you don't get as much. You'll get REM rebound later. So the next night, if you're taking these things the next day, you will get more uh, REM sleep to make up for it. Of course, the downside here is very often people are taking these, this stuff uh, for more than one day. If you're given diazepam, if you go into a hospital and you're convulsing, well, you're going to be there for a long time anyway, and REM sleep probably isn't your worst problem. If, if you're kind of freaking out because a relative, you've just taken a relative in, 
There are times when in an emergency room they'll say, here, just take this, it'll calm you down. Just a little something, they'll give you, a, you know, 20 milligrams kind of thing, a diazepam. That's one thing. But when you're taking, uh, you know, 50 or 100 a day for days and days and days, that can be an issue. The REM problem. Basically, at first you get euphoria. They feel good. They, they kind of feel like drinking. They're very similar to alcohol. You get what's called a drug liking reaction. Uh, this, if, if you do like the drug, it's somewhat subjective, but it's actually a real term in, in pharmacology. It's when you actually say, I like this. This feels good. This is a drug I enjoy. And then you get fatigue. Again, this sounds a great deal like alcohol, right? These are a lot like alcohol. Um, you get confused. Again, this sounds a lot like alcohol, right? You don't know why you're someplace. You don't know what you're doing while you're doing it. It's just exactly what you'd think of what confusion means. You get a decrease in visual acuity. Again, I'll, I'll stop saying it's a lot like alcohol. You can put that together yourself at this point, I think. Um, divided attention becomes more difficult. Divided attention is a psychological thing. Uh, we can measure attention. It's really pretty easy. Um, you can do this with things like dichotic listening, where you have a message in one ear and one message in the other ear, and you're supposed to just repeat what's coming into your left ear. Uh, that's something that after a few seconds is actually trivially easy for people unless they've been drinking or taking diazepam or phenobarbital or something, then it becomes really hard. Now, what's that testing? Well, it's testing your ability to divide your attention. It's not testing your ability to multitask. Nobody can multitask. It's just one of those myths we have. No, it's a multitasking. That's bullshit. There's like a small percentage, apparently, of the population, maybe, can. But it's a really small percentage. <laughs> But it's your ability to switch back and forth. It's more like uh, multitasking in Windows 95. I don't know if that helped anybody. Um, and we do this all the time, especially when you're driving a car, right? Because you have to be paying attention to the road and being paying attention to uh, cars around you, things like that. Your reaction time increases. And remember, in this case, increase is bad. You want a quick reaction time for any situation. Um, it's interesting. You get effects in memory about acquisition, but not about recall. Acquisition, meaning the learning itself of something, doesn't seem to change much. But your ability to recall stuff is effective. So you can learn new things, but recalling old things doesn't work very well. Dan, yep. is that backwards on the slide then? Because that's very confusing. Oh yeah, no, I'm sorry. No, I just said it backwards. That's, that's the problem. Yeah, you have acquisi acquisition effects, but not recall effects. I said it all backwards. Thanks. So you, yeah, you, you have trouble learning, but you don't have trouble remembering. Um, this isn't, this is common enough, these kind of um, state, it's a state-dependent effect. 
right? So it's hard to learn, but it's not hard to recall stuff. So for example, if you're learning something on diazepam, and I ask you to recall it later, you're going to have trouble. When you're not on diazepam, because you haven't learned it. However, if you're on diazepam, and I say, what's the capital of Vietnam? You say Hanoi. That's, that's a running example I had in my memory class. That's why I used that. Or ask you what you had for breakfast. You'll be fine. Crumpets. Love crumpets. They're a vehicle for butter. <laughs> and you get a hangover afterwards, which feels lovely. Like it's called a hangover because it feels just like a hangover novel. So don't drive a car, please. And you would be, you know, if they did a blood test, etc., you would be charged with impaired driving in any jurisdiction. More stuff. Uh, in lab animals, you get more exploration. So I'm talking rats here. So rats typically will not, in a, new, in a novel situation, they don't look around much. They're careful. And the way you test this, and I've talked about this before, is you put them on a great big, you know, like a four by eight sheet of plywood. Right? That's basically what your apparatus is. It's called, they call it an open field. It's really just a piece of plywood that you put sealant on because they piss all over it. And typically what rats will do is they'll stay around the edges. They like the edges. And they, they, they don't run around. They won't go to the middle very often. They won't rear up and look around. Does that thing rats do? But if you give them some diazepam, they actually will. That sounds kind of odd, because isn't it a depressant? Shouldn't they do less? Maybe it's disinhibition. So maybe it's the case that normally that exploratory behavior in a novel situation is inhibited. This is an inhibitory drug, so it's inhibiting the inhibition. That's a possibility. <coughs> we could also just say, you know, these are anti-anxiety meds. It could simply be the case that they aren't <coughs> as frightened anymore. They're not as anxious. So it's probably both of those. Like I said, this is the calm down, calm down, calm down. Like, you know, the idea of expression taking value. Right? Expressions have a reason for them. There's an increase in what's called FR responding and a decrease in FI responding. FR responding is when you train an animal, a rat in this case, or I guess let's just stick with rats, they're pushing a bar. And an FR schedule is uh, the ratio of, of reinforcements, uh, sorry, of, of responses to reinforcements. So that's like FR 10 would be 10 bar presses gets you a piece of food, right? Uh, fixed interval scheduling. Fixed interval schedule is the first response after a certain amount of time has elapsed since the last reinforcement. So if you got an FI 10, the first response after 10 seconds, right? First response after 10 seconds um, is reinforced. Animals are typically very good at both of these things. Uh, the timing one, in fact, this is how we study timing uh, in animals. This is how we determine how good their internal clocks are as we 
decimal means FI schedules. Um, the increase in FR responding might be the lack of anxiety. The decrease in FI responding is probably a timing effect. Because to do FI responding properly, to do it well, you have to be able to keep track of time. So their clock's slowing down. <laughs> I don't have to respond yet. It hasn't been 10 seconds yet. So it's probably a timing effect. I get that in with a question mark there because we don't. This hasn't really been uh, studied like crazy. The timing aspect of it, but that's probably what this is. And you'll see this kind of uh, effect as well. These kind of effects on interval timing uh, a lot with drugs that they either increase or decrease interval time uh, uh, responding, and that's almost certainly a timing effect. You get an increase in punished behavior. So you got the rat, and you put him in the box, and every time he goes over to that side of the box, you shock him. Rats learn pretty damn, pretty damn quickly to stay on the other side of the box. Really easily. I mean, that's, that's a simple thing to learn. That's what punishment is, right? Punishment is uh, a stimulus given that decreases the likelihood of the behavior. <coughs> Typically a rat, when you've done this just a few times, it'll stay there. Give him some diazepam, he wanders over. Again, Probably something to do with the lack of anxiety here. We don't exactly know, but that's a good guess. There's dissociative effects. This is the idea that learning something on the drug won't be remembered off the drug. Right? Again, there are these other effects I was talking about, but generally these dissociative effects involve when you learn something on the drug, you don't remember it off the drug. And this is why, for example, one of the many reasons that something like diazepam is given to chemo patients when they're going to get chemo that's going to make them ill. Right? And while chemotherapy is getting better and better uh, at not making you sick, I know when my dad had his chemo for his uh, brain tumor, well, my dad's dead, so it actually didn't work very well, but uh, I can laugh at my dad. I'm not happy that he's dead. It was a little joke. He would have enjoyed that joke. Don't feel uncomfortable. Um... But he didn't get sick. Because I remember, I remember I asked him, I said, are they giving you Valium? And uh, he said, no. And then he swore a couple of times, because he was, alas, he was my father. I come by it honestly. Um, but then, then I remember asking him, are you getting sick from it? He said, no, I just get sleepy. Right? So it does take a lot out of you. So he wasn't actually getting ill, like sick to his stomach. A lot of people get very sick to their stomach, right? So what they'll do is, before you come in, I told you guys this, they'll actually give you some diazepam, and you, they give it to you at home, and when you get to the cancer treatment place, you've taken it half an hour before, and then when you leave, you don't associate being sick with the hospital, because you're already not having a good time going to hospitals. Let's not make it any worse. Right? Or let's not make it to the point where you don't show up for your chemo treatment because you're afraid of the hospital and because you're sick. Like, like you start getting ill, right? Like sick your stomach's sick. Uh, I didn't know about this until um, I taught this course once, and a pharmacist, an actual pharmacist, was in the class. I was like frightened. I was like, I don't know more about this stuff. I didn't feel really stupid. And then he said, Well, they don't teach us about illegal drugs in pharmacy school. Um, but he, was, he told me this. He said, You know, it's like it's standard procedure when something comes in. You, you give them a prescription for, for, uh, for value. Um, Um. 
<coughs> acute tolerance to both these kind of drugs develops pretty quickly. Acute tolerance is the tolerance that you have in the drug-taking bout. So you take the Valium. I had a friend in high school who took Valium for fun. Uh, so he, he'd take one, and then he'd need to take two. You can see already that's a little dangerous. Chronic tolerance seems to first develop to the depressant effects. So in other words, the things that slow you down, the fatigue. And then to the anti-anxiety effects. So this is interesting that we have sort of a biphasic chronic tolerance effect, right? So first, it's to the depressant effects, the sort of the sleepiness. And then to the anti-anxiety effects. So then you need more to deal, deal with the anti-anxiety part. Uh, there's cross-tolerance from barbiturates to benzodiazepines. In other words, if you are tolerant to, so acute tolerant, uh, well, sorry, chronic tolerant. Values could be acute, but you don't tend to mix those two things in one day. Um, to say diazepam, then if you take phenobarbital, you'll have the same tolerance effects. Not surprising, given the fact that in the grand scheme of things, they're both working on the GABA system right at the same place. And there's some cross-tolerance <coughs> to barbiturates and alcohol. So if you're taking phenobarbital, you can get tolerant to alcohol and vice versa. Which is one of the things that makes us think that we talked about how alcohol, we don't quite really know how it works, but this makes you believe it has something to do with GABA. <coughs> and this is one of the reasons, in fact, that barbiturates have been used as treatment for alcohol substitution. So you take people that have an alcohol problem and you start giving them phenobarbital. I don't think that this is a very good approach because people that have a drinking problem might have a drink. And if they're already taking something that you keep, they may end up like those Heaven's Gate people that all killed themselves. From barbiturates withdrawal, you get a rem rebound, uh, you get tremors. It's kind of sound a lot, again, a lot like alcohol. Um, insomnia, this isn't surprising because these things put you to sleep. Right? Now you don't have something else put you to sleep. And typically, withdrawal symptoms tend to be pretty much the opposite of the effects of a drug, right? <coughs> uh, nausea. <coughs> Seizures. Especially if you're on the drug. Yeah, exactly. Because you're going to get withdrawal. I mean, if, if it's one day, you're not going to get these. You might, get, you might feel a little funny. You might get that sort of like, uh, you're a night will hangover. That kind of thing. Where you wake up and look good, feel like crap, and it's not because I have a cold, it's because I did night wool lesson for like the bed. You know, I know I get night wool hangovers. I, I don't get vodka hangovers. Okay. I'm going to go bottle of vodka right now. Anybody got a bottle of vodka? I'll do it for you right now. Uh, I don't get I really don't get many hangovers from alcohol. I actually, probably because I don't want to stop. But like night wool, I, I feel like crap the whole next day. I feel like I drank six bottles of vodka, which is, you know, a lot. But same sort of thing here. This is after long-term use. It wouldn't be like the short-term use. You might get like a little NyQuil hangover, like I said. Or the little like, I've had a few drinks last night and it was probably not a very good idea, but it's not like I'm puking. Yeah, Jim. Isn't 
REM rebound where you get more REM? Well, because you can't, you gotta, you gotta fall asleep first to get that. So you'll have trouble sleeping. When you fall asleep, you will actually get REM. Yeah, and you get more of your sleep cycle devoted to REM that day. Is that not a good thing, though? It'd be better to just have a constant amount of REM each night. Okay, but... But, I mean, you're actually, you already have trouble falling asleep, though. So you're going to get a bigger part of your sleep cycle devoted to REM, but you're not going to get very much sleep. Right. So that's, it's not really a great thing, because, I mean, you're having trouble sleeping anyway. You might hallucinate. This is after, by the way, this is chronic use. Eh? This is long term. This isn't. The chance of any of you being prescribed barbiturates is pretty small. Uh, but if you were, they'd be pretty careful about how long you took them. This is typically after long term recreational use. Or non prescribed use, people taking them as sleeping pills because they can't sleep. If you can't sleep, buy some freaking melatonin. Don't say your friend goes, I got some phenobarbital. First of all, the first question is, why do you have phenobarbital? A benzodiazepine is pretty similar. Uh, you get agitated. Well, remember, they calm you down. So that makes some sense. Uh, you end up getting kind of depressed. That seems kind of weird. Right? But it might have something to do with the opposite of the anti-anxiety effect. Maybe. I don't know. It hurts. Oh, it hurts. Muscle pain. Joint pain. Just general pain. Uh, you actually get the DTs from benzodiazepine withdrawal. Just like alcohol. The feeling that there is there are bugs crawling on your skin. Uh, REM rebound again. And it's a two-stage withdrawal process from benzodiazepines. Because remember, we had two-stage tolerance. So you get two-stage withdrawal. So you're going to have to withdraw from the, the withdrawal effects that look like they are anti-anxiety withdrawal and the withdrawal effects that are anti... Uh, that, that, are, that are sort of... Um, the opposite of the sort of fatigue, the sort of depression, depressant withdrawal. So you get sort of, it's a two-stage thing. And it goes in the opposite order to where the tolerance uh, develops. Most people don't choose to take these. Uh, this is not a popular street drug. Neither of these uh, they had their day. Uh, quaaludes, not the quaalone, um, was very popular in the 70s and early 80s. In the 60s, too. Uh, you don't see it much anymore. Is uh, Ativan a uh, benzodiazepine? It's the one in Yeah, it's a benzodiazepine. Yeah, it ends in pan. Yeah, it is. But yeah, nobody, you know, when I was in high school in the early 80s, people, you know, there were people that took, quote, lewds, you know, and there's the joke in Fast Times Ridgemont High, which is a movie everyone should watch, where um, Spicoli says, people on lewds should not drive. <laughs> and now, of course, 
He is the UN ambassador, special ambassador to Haiti, Sean Penn. But you just don't see them anymore. Um, if you already, the, the people that will choose to take these drugs are people that already have a problem with alcohol use um, or other settings. So it's the kind of thing, you will take it, if you've ever taken these things, and somebody here has taken Valium almost like diazepam or, or Ativan, these kind of things, quite possibly. Um, you're typically going to think to yourself, this kind of feels like taking a drink. But, you know, there's already drinks available. So most people won't choose to go out and take these things. But if you do, it's probably, again, it would be if you already have a history of, of using something like this. And remember what the cross tolerance between alcohol and barbiturates makes some sense. So if you get a liking reaction to alcohol, you are more likely to get a liking reaction to these drugs. That's basically what I'm saying. Um, one of the problems that happens here is uh, iatrogenic, iatrogenic, you know, it's a mix, you sound like yeah. Uh, iatrogenic use is when people, of, of any drug, uh, it doesn't have to actually be, I mean, iatrogenic cause of something is an un, uh, unintended consequence of a diagnosis. Okay? So this can also be a psychiatric or psychological diagnosis. So it doesn't have to be medical. But let's stick with uh, sort of medical stuff. So you may be given the drug for the wrong reason. Okay. Uh, there were many uh, women in the 1970s and late 1960s that were given, that were prescribed diazepam because they just felt so agitated and upset all the time, and it was the world was changing. And instead of saying that the world was changing, well, just take some Valium, you'll be fine, dear. So you end up not really treating a symptom of any sort. You end up with someone who's got a problem with a drug. Uh, it could also just be, well, pretty much anything. So you think of like House is a, is a beautiful example of this, TV show House. Now he, he takes uh, Vicodin, which is a, a, an opiate. <laughs> it's a little bit different. But of course he eventually ends up, he needed it for his leg, and he kept taking it, taking it, taking it. What people end up doing is they do something called doctor shopping. So you go, and they, they learn how to get the drug. Oh, I'm really agitated, and I'm really upset all the time, and I'm having a really rough... Can I... I just need... They never say, if you're doing it properly, you don't say, I just need some Valium. You just know exactly the symptoms to present to a doctor. And the doctor writes your prescription. The nice thing is, especially in Canada, um, pharmacies are sort of hooked up now, uh, so you get a lot less... It's a lot harder to do this in Canada than it used to be. It's still going to be done. But it's harder to do than it used to, to, do this than it used to be where people would go to like five or six doc doctors in one day, go to different clinics, present symptoms, and get a prescription. And then all you do is you go to a different pharmacist. You don't walk in there <coughs> prescriptions. and say, I need all these. <laughs> They're all from different doctors, all from different, different specialists, clearly. Um, you go to one pharmacist and the next one and the next one. The nice thing is now these things tend to be uh, in databases. Right? And you end up with... Uh, I'm saying, uh, no, I don't think so. 
<coughs> but it, is, it, it especially was a, a big problem. It's not as big a problem as it was maybe 10, 15 years ago when there the, weren't these sort of networks uh, with pharmacists, right? Of course, you can still, if you know how to play it, right? You go into a doctor's office and you say, I don't have any money to buy drugs, I have no drug plan, but I'm feeling like this, and a sympathetic doctor will often say, I got some samples I can give you. Right? I mean, hell, I remember when I was a postdoc and I had no medical plan at all because there was no... Anyway. And my daughter had an ear infection and I went to the MD and he said, don't get a medical plan. I said, I get nothing. I'm making hardly any money. I just have more education than you. He said, ah, well, let's see, antibiotics, antibiotics. Yeah, probably these. He pulled out like a sample, put them all in a bottle and said, just give her one of those a day. She'll be fine. You know, and again, same kind of thing could happen. Oh, doc, I can't pay for it, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know, I'm going to work. Oh, well, what the hell. Doctor's trying to do the right thing. You end up loading up on value. One of the big speed, uh, sort of street uses um, is to smooth out a speed rush. Because <laughs> you can get pretty antsy taking speed. You ever seen anybody taking, like, uh, crystal meth? They can be kind of antsy. So there's a way to smooth that out, and that's just with a little value. It's a substitute for heroin, which, of course, uh, speed and heroin, that's a speedball. Good times. Bill John Belushi and Chris Farley, as I've mentioned before, it only kills fat SNL actors somehow. So that's really nowadays the street use. This is not something you see a lot of people taking. Like I said, it used to be. I, I don't know what happened in society that people stopped taking things like quaaludes. And as I said, I had a friend, a good friend in high school that took Valium all the time. Great guy, too. He's a bank executive now. We all have a misspent youth. Uh, birth defects possible here? Yeah, for sure with, with barbiturates. Maybe benzodiazepines, we don't know. Data aren't very clear on this, but for sure with barbiturates. So you get just an increased level of just general birth defects. Uh, newborns go through withdrawal. So that's that just the other day. Yeah, when they're born, because this stuff crosses the placental barrier, you end up going through withdrawal when you're born. It goes away. It's not like the kid for the rest of its life, but it's not a very nice way to enter the universe. Because in essence, the kid's been mainlining this stuff, right? So they can have uh, on fetuses demasculinizing effects and also demasculinizing effects on grown-ups. You can make your 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 nuts smaller and your wee wee. I use nuts, but I won't almost say penis. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, and on a, on, a, on a fetus, uh, it can actually. In high enough doses, uh, barbiturates can make a male come out like a female. Uh, people can get aggressive and violent taking these things. And again, this is disinhibition, right? Um, you would think that they're, they're, they're going to slow you down. But depending on how much you're taking it, especially if you're tolerant to this stuff, chronic tolerance, you're going to not feel anxiety anymore. It's almost like a taming effect in some respects. It's, ah, I'm not going to be afraid of anything anymore. Right? 
So that's a bad thing. Sounds again like, a little bit like alcohol, right? The lethal dose, of course, doesn't show tolerance. Lethal doses don't. But the effective dose does. Oh, grand. Because, of course, the effective dose, as I mentioned this before, is almost always a subjective thing, isn't it? Right? It's almost always a subjective thing. Do I, do, am I getting a drug-liking reaction? Or, you know, or my seizures going away if you're taking it as a seizure medication? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, you start to take more and more and more, and eventually the curves sort of eventually have to cross. Right? And that's a bad scene. That, that's when you die. That's when you have one of those overdose. It's not surprising that the LD50 uh, doesn't really change, of course. Um, you know, we're talking about something directly acting on physiology. For treatment, um, first thing you have to do is get over withdrawal. So that's sort of a detox thing, right? So what happens is you go into some treatment program and they take away all your pills. Make sure you go through the withdrawal and don't take anything else. And once you're sort of cleaned up, this, this, then you go into some kind of program. This pretty much should be done under a doctor's care if you can. Typically, these things should be. Uh, interestingly enough, most of the time when you have the illegal drugs you're taking, most people don't go under a doctor's care because they're afraid. They've committed a crime. Most people that are taking these things for fun, they had to get them somehow. They had to get them by going into a doctor and saying, yeah, I've got uh, kind of shaky and nervous all the time. I'm having a really bad day today. And, you know, it's valuable. Or they got them by buying on the street. Right? Probably more likely. In which case, either way, you're committing a crime. Now, most people don't realize that an MD is not going to say, well, first I'll call the police. <laughs> you know, they don't work that way. I mean, if you show up with, I just killed a guy to get some value, they'll probably call the cops down. I think that's sensible. A lot of 12-step programs that are based on alcoholics and used. Uh, this, you'll find this with almost all the drugs we talk about. Uh, contracting, again, I talked about the other day with alcohol, uh, has been kind of successful here. And the idea, again, is basically you write a contract up with the service provider, right, the, the, the person that's your therapist, and you say, okay, you're going to get random drug tests. That's the first thing. And now when we find any in you, we're going to start telling people. And we're gonna, I want you to rank who's the least and most important of these people in your life. And we'll start with the lowest. But every time you break your contract, we start moving up the line. Right? Behavior has consequences. Uh, it's had some effect. It's somewhat effective. Like I said, the hardest part of this whole thing is getting people that have been taking a drug illegally to admit to taking it. People that have been actually prescribed these things really and then they end up with this sort of iatrogenic cause of a drug problem, you know, they'll go in and say, I've got a, you know, they're, they're still unlikely to say it, but they may go in and say, I've got a problem with drugs that I was prescribed, and then I, I can't get off them, etc. But someone who's taking it completely for recreational purposes, <coughs> it's hard to get them to admit to stuff. So a lot of these treatment programs, it's really hard to know how successful any of them are. Because it's hard to get subjects in a research study to admit that they've done something illegal. Even if you tell them it's confidential and anonymous and you will keep the data and it's all signed and it'll be in a safe and they won't have any names on it, it's still hard to do. Right? This is one of these things of studying any of these kind of things. Almost Studying almost any kind of illegal activity is hard. Right? 
It's like studying prostitution. It's like studying criminals. You know, you've got a biased sample. You got the ones that got caught. Right? So it's really a hard this is it's hard to know if a lot of this stuff actually works well. Right? Because a lot of these things are done with uh, these sort of 12-step programs or any of these sort of drug rehabilitation centers. The problem with these places is that a lot of them are private operations, which is not a problem per se. The problem there is that they want people to think that they do well because, of course, they're trying to make money, which is fine, whatever they want to do. So they might have trouble funding a study because what if it turns out what they're doing doesn't work? And it's basically just a whole bunch of musicians, athletes, and actors that are showing up and paying $3 million or something to, to be there. They don't want the people, the people to know. Kind of thing, right? So it's really a hard thing, even on that level, to find out if anything really works well. When do doctors, like, do doctors still regularly prescribe this? Oh, sure. Because they have real medical uses. Anti-seizure medication, um, anti-anxiety, uh, sort of short-term anxiety. They, these have really uses. Like, okay, but like for the reasons like back in the 60s and 70s, for nervous disorders... Oh, no, 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 it's not... I mean, and again, the reason there... Uh, this is a bit of a myth, but it does happen... It did happen to a point, not to the level that some people make, you, make it up to believe, but uh, the idea that like sort of housewives that were unsatisfied with their lives were prescribed these all over the world to keep the women down. It happened a little. It wasn't like every woman between the age of 20 and 40 was taking these in the late 1960s. It just simply isn't true. But people were. People were. My mom's told me that this happened with her. Oh, take, start taking Valium. And she did for a few. like, no, nah, I'm not doing this. It's ridiculous. Society sucks. It's not, like I said, I don't need drugs. Well, the drugs might help, but that's, that's, that's me talking. My mom doesn't talk like that. No, it's just I know my mom was still being prescribed them for nervous disorder mm-hmm. when it was like the 90s. Yeah, you're probably still into that. Now we tend to use we being, uh, not me, because I, I can't do that, but now people tend to use uh, like SSRIs, things like that a lot more. Uh, they seem to have some effect. Yeah. Um, it depends on, I think, what you have. I mean, it will work for some people, but it's not, it's not used nearly as much in psychological sort of situations as it used to be. Because it's better drugs. So it's used more just strictly for like seizures? It's seizures a lot of times, but also, like I said, it still is used somewhat for anxiety, yeah. But not, not at the same level as it was. Yep. Other questions? All right. People that aren't here. Let me see if I can get it right I never wanted it to end like this in the fight When you say you don't want to be free from me And all the words that I said that you didn't believe Well, you can spend every day in a comatose And I'm out every night in an overdose I know you think what we had was oh so close But not like everything else, it's over and lost And the flowers and glass when they smashed on the floor And I look on your face when I open the door I couldn't believe there was somebody standing there And you don't care what well, breaking
someone else And I can go get sane with someone else I don't think I can leave the pain I felt It's so inside, I don't think anyone could help And the fire is a glass when they smashed on the floor And I look on your face when I open the door I couldn't believe there was somebody standing there But I don't care, I'm breaking up with everything It's not just you, I'm losing it Look down to your nothing, this is all I've got I'm breaking up with everything It's not just you, I'm losing it Look down to your nothing, this is all I've got There's no way to let you down slow There's no way to let you down slow Breaking up with everything It's not just you podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.